Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who whet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search, for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what they tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. I'm going to use my headset. Something's going on with this microphone. Might be the battery trying to go out. Keep your Bible open to Psalm 64, and we will be going through there. If you have a worship guide, you can follow along. On the back of your worship guide, there's an outline provided for you. So if you want to follow along and take notes, you can do that. This past week alone, if you've kept up with the news at all, you've seen several instances of... um, homicides and killings and injustices that have gone on in various places. Just this past week in Philadelphia, there was an incident. I'm, I'm intentionally being vague for some of the younger ears that are here. In Maryland, another. In Chicago, there's ongoing instances of homicide by gun. In Germany, someone who decided to plow into a crowd with their car. In Nigeria last Sunday, while a church was meeting for worship, someone with a gun came in and took out 50 or more people. All of these situations and more, what's going on in Ukraine, what happened in Uvalde, Texas a couple of weeks ago, all of these situations, we see that and we hear it what happened in Buffalo, all of them, every time we hear of those things in the news or we see them, emotionally, something should happen in our hearts for a right reason. It should cause us to have emotional release of things like anger and sadness and confusion. Why, God, would you allow this to happen? Uh, even, even a feeling of injustice that was done and a desire to see God's justice and to see justice on earth executed judgment towards those people who would do that. And all of those desires, all of those feelings when you hear of those things come from an inner desire to see God's justice on earth. Now sometimes that gets expressed or applied in ways that are sinful or in ways that do not line up with God's justice, but all of us in our hearts have a desire to see justice happen. And that's because all of us have a desire, because we are image bearers of God, to see 
What, what is wrong be punished, and those who are done wrong to be helped. There is a Croatian theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf, who when talking about justice and when people think about God's judgment on sin, oftentimes people will think, well, I believe in a loving God. I don't believe in a God that is going to punish sinners and punish sin. I can't believe in a God that, that, would, that would punish people in a place called hell for eternity. And Miroslav Volf was writing in a book, and he was talking about how only those who truly believe in a loving God can understand judgment. And only those who believe in God's justice can truly understand His love and His mercy. He said this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. During, he was a part of a resistance in his country. He said, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and my cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. He would later go on to say it's because he knows God loves him that eventually those people who had committed those terrible crimes would face God's judgment in one way or another. And that's what we're going to come to today in our psalm is David, the writer of this psalm, is acknowledging there is injustice in this world. Real evil done against people who, who are victims of abuse, who are victims of crime and cruelty. And so for those who believe in God, a God of love, but also a God of judgment and justice, how do we balance these things? And how do we look at these things that go on in our world, understanding that God is sovereign over all of them? And so if you have your Bible open to Psalm 64, I'm going to break this down into the, the 10 verses that you see, 1 through 6. We're going to look at David feeling under attack. And another phrase you can put there is injustice. And then 7 through 9, we're going to see that God is our helper or God is just. And then verse 10, because of this, we can rejoice in the Lord. And so the first thing we see in David's prayer, he says, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Notice that if you see things in the world that truly cause you discomfort, cause you anger, cause you sadness, and even a, a feeling of complaining. God, why? Why won't you do something that you can take that to him? God is ready to hear your complaining in prayer. Now, I'm, I'm one of those that I will acknowledge that I believe complaining in a certain form is sinful. Because we are commanded to give thanks in all circumstances. 
And that every situation we're in, everything that the Lord has provided us with, we are to be grateful for. But also in a world of sin, complaining can have a a, a sense of righteousness behind it. What do I mean by that? Well, when you see that the world is not as it should be, when you see that sin has broken and corrupted our world, complaining in a form can be going to God and saying, God, this is not right. Something is not right. And that's what David is saying is, Lord, hear my complaint. Hear me cry out that something does not seem right in this situation. And so David literally feels under attack. He says, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. Hide me, in verse 3, from those who whet their tongues or sharpen their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. That term translated arrows can also uh, talk about arrows that have been soaked in poison. Poisonous arrows, words that are poisonous, intended to bring people down. And then you see him continue. They search out injustice. They hold fast to their evil purpose. So in all of these situations, David is saying, Lord, I feel under attack. I feel like I'm being attacked for, for no good reason. I feel like there's injustice being done. James chapter 3 talks about the sin that can be caused with our tongues. He breaks that down and says that with the same tongue we bless some and then we curse some. Those who are image bearers. And he says this should not be. But in reality it is. Tongue sins, word sins, things like being a part of conspiracies that we have no evidence to back up. Same as lying. Rumors, gossiping about others, slandering others, exaggerating and embellishing things for the sake of finding approval or being enjoyed. Telling tall tales, not necessarily in a creative way like some of your kids might read in school, but telling tall tales for the purpose of winning people's uh, acceptance. Flattery, buttering up, trickery, insults, mocking, defamation, and false accusations. What do we call all these things? We call it bad-mouthing, right? Because literally, we're using our mouth for bad purposes, for sinful purposes. And so David is feeling that from others, but Before we even move on from this first point, we have to be able to acknowledge that we too participate in the sins of the tongue. All of us have. All of us have been part of conversations that are talking about others in a negative way that we do not need to be a part of, and yet we stay and maybe even participate. All of us have been a part of accusing someone or spreading a rumor about someone that we really don't know if there's any evidence to back that up. Whether it's about a friend who's not around or political figures, all of us have been a part of slander and false accusations and defamation. And that's sin. We have willingly and sometimes unknowingly participated in sin's of the mouth. And so 
What do we do not only when we find ourselves in those situations, but when that's happening against us? One of the things I've been doing throughout this series this summer in the Psalms is I've been trying to tie in David's Psalms with actual situations of his life. And whether or not David wrote this psalm around this same time, we do know that he experienced these things. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, this is actually right after he's fled from Jerusalem from his own son, Absalom. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And in 2 Samuel verse 16, starting in verse 5, it says this, When King David came to Bahurim, there came out out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shami, the son of Girah. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shami said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. What is Shemi doing? He's accusing David of being unjust. And there were times when David, I mean, the the chants used to say, right? David has killed his ten thousands. And in a way, he was a man of blood, but he was sent by God to fight on God's behalf, but Shemi is turning this around. Why? Because he's part of the house of Saul. He's jealous. He's angry that David now is ruling on, or, or has been ruling on the throne. So what is he saying? He's basically accusing David of being unjust, of being a bad king, a bad leader, a violent man, and serves you right. God removed you and put Absalom back on the throne. Serves you right, David. And so what's the response? Verse 9 Samuel, 2 Samuel 16, Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, that is one of, that, that's one of David's mighty men, one of his soldiers, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> what is Abishai saying? He's saying, this isn't right. Let me execute justice on this guy. Let me just, you know lower him a little bit, maybe by about a head. Let me just put him in his place. And so what does David say? Verse 10, but the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life But how much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. What was David's response to this? It could have been to defend himself, to say, no, hold on, you're wrong. Those are false accusations. God sent me to do those things. God sent me as his executor of war and all those things. God told me to go into battle. You're you're falsely accusing. This is slander. He could have defended himself. But what does he say? He says, no. 
what if, what if the Lord sent this man to curse me, and what if God's going to use it for my good? Wow. How many of us in those situations are able to stop in the moment and say, Lord, how are you going to use this for my good? Instead of responding and retaliating to respond with grace and with mercy and even with trust to say, God might turn this. And indeed, if we are believers in Christ, He has promised to turn every evil for our good and for His glory. And so that is what David is resting in. So just to think through that, have you ever been in a situation or had a friend or family member in a situation where they have been falsely accused? They've been bad-mouthed. You've been bad-mouthed. You've been slandered about, gossiped about, and you found out about it afterwards. What is your natural response? To write the person off? You know, you've probably heard it said, you're dead to me. Or to talk about, well, yeah, but they, they do this, or they're like this. To defend, no, that's not true. Or is it to respond and say, maybe the Lord will use this for my good. And to even stop and pray and thank God for the opportunity to grow in mercy and in patience, really to be like Jesus. Lord, you promised you would make me like Jesus as a believer. Now I've got a really strong opportunity to stop and say, Lord, I, and to confess, Lord, I do not feel gracious right now. Help me. Help me to respond with mercy, with forgiveness, and with grace, just like Jesus. Make me more like Jesus right now in this situation. So that's what we see in David, and that's what we see here. He's acknowledging the injustice, but he's also able to stop. And why is he able to do that? Because verse 7 through 9 shows us. Verse 7 starts out with, But God... I'm going to challenge you to, to do a little search. You, there's different tools online you can do this with. You can try to do it with your concordance in your Bible. But go through the Bible sometime, personal Bible study, and look up the phrase, but God. Because in most of those situations, it's about to, to, to show you something really, really cool. <laughs> One situation that I think of is in Ephesians chapter 2. It says all of us are, were belonged to this world. We were in sin. We were dead in our transgressions and sin and the ways we used to formerly walk. And then in verse 4 it says, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. Throughout the Bible there are phrases or, or, or true teachings, powerful teachings that follows the phrase, but God. So how does David follow that phrase now? Verse 7, but God shoots his arrow at them. Now David's talking about swords. Their tongues are like swords. Their bitter words are like arrows. They search out injustice. He said they are planning evil in their hearts, and the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrows at them. This is a pretty vivid image of God, isn't it? This isn't the, the God of gentle love that everybody likes to talk about. This is a God of vengeance. This is a God of justice and judgment on sinners. 
He is going to aim his arrow at people and shoot at them. Now, how does he do that? I want to give you two ways he does that. The first way he does that is actually through conviction. The Bible also talks about God's Word being a two-edged sword, piercing through and cutting through the marrows of the heart. God, with His Word and by His Spirit, convicts us of our sins. And if you've ever really been broken over your sin, it feels like an arrow to the heart. It pierces, it hurts, it causes pain, but the result of that, when you turn that into trust and faith and see the forgiveness that God has towards you as a real sinner, it, the, the result is joy. I just heard the testimony of a pastor this past week who was talking about a situation when um, they were giving some advice to someone. It was a woman, and after this, this man had given this advice to this woman, and the woman decided not to necessarily follow his advice, but went and sought other counsel before deciding what they were going to do, this person came back, this man, this pastor came back and said, listen, if you're not going to do what I say, if you're not going to follow my advice, uh, I, I really do know in this situation what's right, but if you're not going to follow that, just don't ask me. And the woman was talking to her husband afterwards and said, this, this man talks to me like I'm dumb. And the husband said, he talks to everybody like they're dumb. And the pastor took that and said, well, you know, in this situation, I really was right, and my conscience is clear, and started walking through the situation and, and even said, well, you know, sometimes, you know, I, people, I really do know more than other people. I really do give good advice. And so in a way, kind of justifying himself. Well, 10 years later, he was sharing just in the past couple weeks, 10 years later, the Lord took a situation where he was saying something, and I guess kind of a similar situation happened, and he said, in that moment, his heart was pierced. That he, he was broken over the fact that he belittles people, that he's filled with pride, that he really thinks he's better than people, that when people don't do things the way he would do them, that he just thinks they're so dumb or they're so slow or whatever. And it said it took 10 years, but the Lord finally pierced his heart. That was the phrase he used. He pierced his heart, convicted him of the sin of pride that was so deeply a part of him that he couldn't see it. He was blind to it. And so that's, that's one way the Lord pierces the heart is by the grace of conviction. It's a merciful and gracious thing for the Lord to convict us of our sin, to pierce our hearts in that way. But then if the Lord does not do that, if He doesn't convict us and bring us to a realization of our sin and of His forgiveness then he also promises to pierce our heart and to aim his arrow at those who do not repent. If you were to go to Psalm 7, you don't have to flip there, but Psalm 7 says this, starting at verse, 5, uh, verse 12. It says, If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword, sharpen his sword. Same phrase in our psalm. 
He has bent and readied his bow. Now, I don't know if any of y'all do bow shooting or archery, ever done archery class before, or um, bow hunting or whatever, if you've ever used a bow for any reason. When is the bow bent? It's bent when you're getting ready to shoot. It's bent when you're aiming. And this psalm says, If a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. His bow is already bent and ready to shoot. He has prepared for him deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head, on his own skull, his violence descends. Psalm 7 and Psalm 64 are promising, listen, God's going to bring judgment. Those who have done evil, who do not repent of their evil, God has the bow ready. He will shoot his arrow. He will sharpen his sword. He will turn, in verse 8 of our psalm, he will turn their tongues against them. It's reminding me of Romans 2 that says, with the very judgment that you've judged others, God's going to judge you. If you hold others to a higher standard of righteousness and, and, and living than yourself, God's going to turn that right back against you if you don't repent and turn to him. God will sharpen his arrow. He will shoot his arrow. So through conviction, but also through judgment, God will shoot his arrow at people. 1 Peter chapter 2 is talking about Jesus when he went through suffering <clears throat> and says that Jesus himself is to be our example. If you were to follow in verses 21 and 23 of 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, that is, when he was um, insulted, he did not revile or insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter is saying that if you want to be like Jesus, expect insults. Expect to be reviled. Expect for people to, to, to talk about you in a bad way. But when that happens, don't return evil for evil. Don't return insulting or reviling for insult. How? How are we to do that? By knowing that God will judge justly. That's why Paul says, vengeance belongs to the Lord. He, he's quoting Scripture when he says that. When God himself said, vengeance is mine. In chapter 3 of 1 Peter, it continues in that same thought. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So instead of returning insult for insult, instead of defending yourself, bless the person. What? 
You're kidding me, right? You want me to bless the person that is doing evil to me? To pray for them? Are you kidding me? How? By seeing Jesus, seeing that Jesus was the one who forgave, who said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To, to see Jesus as the one who died for your sins of the mouth so that you could forgive other sin, sinners who sin against you with their mouth. And so how are you to do this? By first seeing Jesus, the one who suffered on your behalf, but also by trusting in God's justice, that in the end, God will repay every evil for what it deserves. And so if you are able to acknowledge that there is injustice in the world, but at the same time trust that God will execute justice in the end through His righteous judgment, well then, that means in verse 10 that you can rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 10. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in Him. Let the upright in heart exult. So if you're righteous, you can rejoice in the Lord. If you're upright in heart, you can rejoice in the Lord. So, show of hands. Who here is righteous? Trick question. No one. Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. So then, how are we going to be able to rejoice? Romans 3. If we were to... You could read through Romans 3 all the way through Romans 7 if you wanted to. I'm not going to do that today. That would take way too long. But Romans 3 says, starting in verse 10, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Wow, that's encouraging, isn't it? Well, if, if the only ones who are going to be able to rejoice are the righteous ones, what hope do we have? Well, if you keep going in chapter 3 of Romans in verse 21, it says, but now, there's another but, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Hold on. Verse 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So you're telling me that through faith in Jesus Christ, I can become righteous? Let's continue reading. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You, me, no one is righteous, no, not one. So what hope do we have? Verse 24, they are justified by His grace. Now this is a very important concept, this concept of justification. Justification is a legal term. It's a legal declaration. As if you were in court and you were before the witnesses and before the judge, and you've been accused of things, and they're bringing your record before you, and then at the end of that accusation, at the end of that, that trial, the judge nailed, you know, slams his gavel down and says, not guilty. That's justification. 
The problem is we are not justified in and of ourselves. We have a, a record full of sin. A record full of sin that if we came in our own power and in our own strength to the righteous judge, God Himself, and said, look at my record, He's going to declare us guilty. And so how are we going to stand before the judge of the earth and have Him declare not guilty? Our verse passage said, it is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25 if you're following in Romans 3. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We're getting into some meaty stuff. But this is good stuff, so try to track with me. I know it's getting late, getting hungry, it's getting warm in here. The, heat, the, the air's trying to work, but this place cooks when it's in the, in the summer. So bear with me, all right? Wake up. Everybody there? God is the one who judges righteously, but He's also the one who justifies graciously by sending His Son to all those who would believe. A lot, of ha- a lot of us have grown up with a concept in church that you've got God the Father who's just this angry judge. And then you've got Jesus the Son who came to pacify and to calm Him down. And so a lot of people, when they think of Jesus, they think he, He's the gentle one. He's the gracious one. He's the merciful one. He's the one that came to take our punishment to make the Father happy, to calm the Father down. And a lot of us have grown up in church or with a concept that, that you've got this angry part of God that just is ready to smite people and cast them down and who's just always angry all the time. And then you've got Jesus, the Son, who has to say, all right, Dad, calm down. I'll go pay for them. I'll take the punishment. Put it on me instead of them. But that's not the picture of God we get at all. We get a God who hates sin, but loves sinners. And because of His love for sinners, sent His Son. It's the Father who planned in His divine forbearance to send His Son, and it was the Son who willingly came to suffer for us the punishment that we deserved. But it was all the plan of a loving father. Jesus did not die so that the father would love you. The father sent his son because he already loved you. Do you believe that? What what picture of God do you have? Is he smiling over you like Zephaniah 3 says? Or is he grimacing? Is he disappointed? Is he angry? For those who are in Christ, God's not angry with you. He loves you. And all of his judgment has been satisfied in Christ. That's why Romans 3 can say, God was righteous so that he could be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So if by faith... You have received the forgiveness of Christ. 
Believing that he died on the cross for your sins, took the punishment that you deserve on the cross, if you have trusted in him, Romans and Galatians and all other parts of the Bible says, you are declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. So now you're counted as one of the righteous ones. Not in your own goodness, but purely by His grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to become sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. That in Adam all fell and all sinned, but through faith in Christ, He is making many righteous. Through faith in Jesus, not, not in your own work. By grace, through faith in Christ, you can be counted righteous. So now, go back to verse 10 of our psalm. Therefore, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Him to be a Savior for sinners, for you? Do you understand that without Christ and His work on the cross, His perfect life, His resurrection, you could never be counted as a righteous person? But through faith in Christ, you are justified. You are declared righteous through faith. If that's true for you, you can exult. You can rejoice. And we talked about this term exulting a little bit last week, but I want to give you a picture of that as we close. On September 4th, 2002, the Oakland Athletics, the Oakland A's, were playing the Kansas City Royals. And this was the potential for the Oakland A's to have 20 wins in a row for a season. That had never been done. This was going to break the record. 20 wins in a row. That's unheard of. And so they start out, and they're in the game, and the Oakland A's come out to an 11-0 lead. 11-0. It's like the second or the third inning in the game. If you're not a baseball person, that's really early on in the game. 11 to 0. Most baseball games are like 4 to 2. So all the fans are going crazy. They're like, this is it. We're going to win 20 in a row. We're going to set the record. This is amazing. Well, over the course of the next six innings, the Kansas City Royals slowly started making a comeback. And the, 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 the attitude and the vibe in the stadium got worse and worse. People were getting mad. People were getting angry. People were getting sad, disappointed. By the ninth inning, the Kansas City Royals had come all the way back from an 11-0 deficit and tied the game in the top of the ninth. That's the, last, that's the first half of the last inning. Tied the game 11-11. So, they, so Oakland A's started out with 11 points and then didn't score again. And their fans are just having to watch this suffering. You know, what is going on? We're going to lose this? What is going on? And so 11-11 in the top of the ninth, they go into the bottom of the ninth and they put a pinch hitter in. His name is Scott Hattenberg. His record of pinch hitting that year was one and five. And so they're watching, bottom of the ninth, Scott Haddenberg gets up to, to bat, and the first pitch, crack, home run. Walk-off home run. The stand goes crazy. They erupt, they're jumping, they're shouting, the dugout empties out. It was a walk-off home run to win the game 12-11 to 11, and to secure the record of 20 wins in a row. 
And that, that feeling, I want you to just try to harness that feeling. If you need to go on YouTube and look it up to, to try to harness that feeling. Because what the Oakland Athletics were feeling for just a short time, you know, we're talking over the span of a couple hours, was they went from joy to disappointment to sadness to suffering to anger. And then in one moment, they were exulting. And that's what the Bible says it's going to be like for us. We're going to have moments of joy here on earth, but we're going to have a lot of moments of suffering and sadness and pain. But one day, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus is going to come back. And those who are in Christ will exult. And it's not going to be a moment anymore. It will be forever. Those who are in Jesus will rejoice in the Lord and will exult forever. So, let me ask you this. Are you justified? Are you justified through faith in Christ? If you know Jesus, the one who died for your sins, if you're trusting in Him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, you are declared righteous through Christ. Do you know what that means? It means like David... You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to talk about how, well, you know, when I cooked this meal, I left it in a little bit too long. Sorry I'm late. There was three red lights and my car's acting funny and then this person pulled out in front of me and slowed me down. You know, I don't, we don't always let our kids watch TV all the time. We don't always feed them Lunchables, you know, all these things. What are all those things? That's us trying to justify ourselves, defend ourselves. If you're justified by faith in Christ, you don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to do, as Paul Tripp says, trigger your inner lawyer. You can just rest and be free, free to love people, free to interact with people, and free to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, do you know Jesus in this way? Are you justified? Are you righteous? No, you're not in and of yourself. But through Christ, you can be declared righteous through faith. And this is good news to know that God is just, but He's also the justifier of anyone who would repent and come to Him in faith. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are righteous, you are just. You are good in all of that you do, in all of your plans, in all of your ways. You are good. And we, though we have sinned and rebelled against you, you have promised mercy and grace and love and forgiveness and righteousness to anyone who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that we would believe that, that we would rest in that, that we would trust it, and that we would look forward to that day that though there is suffering and pain and injustice here and now on earth, we can look forward to that day when we will exult and rejoice forever. And as we wait, we pray that we would see you more and more point your arrows at people's hearts by the power and grace of your Spirit to convict and to bring people to repentance and faith in Jesus and to show us where in our hearts we can continue to trust your grace and to grow through repentance and faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.